pretty affordable prices overall. And their shipping's pretty good too. I, yeah, I'm shocked just looking at it. I'm shocked at how cheap some of this stuff is. All right, looks like Russian River Vinny's in the house. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, brother, we got you. Uh, all right, good. Yeah, sorry I'm a few minutes late. The uh, chiropractor was running a few minutes late. Well, we, we can't have the uh, the brewer and owner of Russian River having his back go out, can we? No, no, it's a uh, it's, it's an unfortunate uh, part of brewing professionally. <laughs> well, you know, you, at least you get your workout in on the day-to-day, right? You know, yeah, yeah, it's, 55 pound sacks. yeah, it's a funny thing during the construction. Uh, I mean, I've never been overweight, but during construction of the Windsor Brewery, I lost like 25 pounds just just walking the facility it was hitting like 15 20,000 steps a day oh my gosh that, that is awesome so it made it but it was great because i could just drink and eat as much as i wanted like it didn't matter <laughs> well Vinny, it's awesome we really appreciate you coming to join us i'm sorry about miscommunications but thanks for being super oh, flexible we really appreciate it yeah i appreciate you being flexible too Nice to uh, see everyone. Awesome, and, and it looks like we got more people joining. But uh, but man, is, is there anything you want to open us up with? You want to hop into questions? I mean, we kind of know who you um, are, but if you want to tell us anything. Yeah, I mean, just uh, you know, my my background is is home brewing, and um, I've always uh, tried to give back to the homebrew community when I when I can. Doesn't always work, but uh, definitely try to. You know, we're obviously well known for. Uh, for not only, you know, IPAs mostly, of course, but, you know, we have a whole barrel aged wild uh, beer program that we're pretty, pretty proud of. And, um, and, you know, now we're making a name for our Pilsner STS, which is uh, actually what I'm going to be drinking when I'm chatting with you guys. Um, I, I love Belgian beers. Unfortunately, they're, you know, not uh, quite as fashionable as they once were. Um, so we have a Saison that we make year round and, um, a lot of our Belgian beers we used to make have kind of tailed off and they've just become draft only, uh, beers, but, um, you know, I'm well-versed on any of those subjects as well as, uh, I'm not a ultra technical brewer, but I'm pretty, pretty technical in nature. And, um, we, we fight hop creep a lot at Russian river. Some breweries do, some breweries don't. So if you guys are not sure what hop creep is, that might be an interesting topic to to discuss as well so well i'm selfishly going to ask about uh your belgians and what first off why did belgians ever go away because i know for a lot of us that got into home brewing a long time ago that was one of the things that got you in was belgians and then what what would you want to bring back to a mainstay in your in your stable of the belgian styles yeah um i you know it's mainly just been consumer preference um and and that's unfortunate you know the um the world seems to revolve around ipa these days and uh no matter if it's a hazy or a west coast or a double or a regular or whatever um you know i i jokingly say you know, i was never a big fan of the black ipa so that didn't, that didn't bother me that that went away um <laughs> but um but no I, I just think it's consumer preference and as a brewery professional brewery you have to make what sells to keep the you know lights on and keep our staff employed and whatnot and so you know that's the beauty of home brewing though you can brew whatever you want and you can you know i mean there's there's never been more information available to home brewers than than there is now 
Um, I, I think for you, to answer your second question, you know, what would I bring back? I'm making the beers, our two year round Belgian inspired beers. Um, they're both Saison's and, uh, I'm, you know, we're making those year round. I won't give those up. Um, they're exclusively made in our open top fermenters. And, um, and that, that's a pretty cool, um, component of, of what we do. Um, the main classic saison is called robert and uh that is completely dry it uses a yeast from omega that is a um, fused yeast together so it's i think it's french saison and then the dupont strain that they've uh, morphed together together and um and, and I like it because it's really high in diastaticus, so it makes an ultra dry beer. We actually ferment it pretty cool, but because we ferment in open top fermenters, we can dissipate the heat very easily. And in doing that, we end up with a um, with a beer that's pretty clean. Um, it's dry. It's it's really dry. It's bitter. Um, it's pretty much just using Pilsner malt, and then we will then take that beer and do a Brett. Uh, secondary fermentation in the bottle and make a companion beer called Yanami. And uh, so it's Robert and Yanami named after a Flemish couple, elderly couple from Belgium that I know that are friends of, of Natalie and mine. So um, I know our consumers would want damnation to be come back. There's a small segment of, of our consumers here in California that would love damnation to come back year round. That was our main uh, Belgian inspired beer, but it just, you know, it, it just doesn't sell as well. We'll make batches for our brew pub and have it on tap, but the bottles just, um, just sit on the shelf collecting dust. And, um, but you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll turn around at, at some point. Um, so I know you mentioned you use your open fermenters for your Saisons, and I believe you mentioned you use it for your loggers as well. We do. We do. And so, uh, Will Alwert, who couldn't be with us tonight, he was asking, what flavor contribution do you think you get from closed versus open fermentation? And I'd be curious in both your lagers and your Saisons. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, um, just to throw a wrinkle in it, we make, um, we run a lot of Pliny the Elder through um, through the open tops as well, through the OTFs. But what the, the basics for um, open top fermentation is that typically they're one-to-one ratio. So they're as wide as they are tall. And um, so if I showed you a drawing of our uh, tanks, you would see the exact same, everything's in metric um, because they came from Germany, but you would see the exact or very close same number of, of both directions. And then of course there's no lid on them. And so all of this combined means that you can uh, blow off a lot more of the fermentation off flavors because as the CO2, as the fermentation is happening and you have the CO2, you know, escaping and it's scrubbing a lot of those off flavors um and at the same time you can create a lot more fruity ester notes uh, by controlling the temperature so all this combined means that you're going to end up with a much cleaner fermentation and then on a belgian inspired beer like a saison if you wanted to you can raise the temperature more easily because you're going to be blowing off the heat more easily and as the co2 scrubs through the beer and you're dissipating heat because fermentation does make heat um, you're just having a more uh, ultra controlled exper experience in the brewery um, if you think about a tall skinny tank and that fermentation's going on and you're making all that heat and it's in a narrow vessel it has a much farther distance to 
travel through to get up to the top of the tank and escape. And the same goes for the, the CO2 that's exhausting out. And then also keep in mind that for about every six feet or so, you, that you're creating one PSI of, of pressure. And it doesn't matter if you have your, you know, if like in our big fermenters are 300 barrel. So those are like 20 some feet tall, even with it vented, you're going to have two, three PSI back pressure, um, even when it's going into a bucket and you can disconnect the hose off the, uh, that's going into the bucket and you can hear it exhaust CO2 for a few seconds. So, um, so the open tops gives you just that opportunity to dissipate the CO2 more easily. Um, so for our loggers, it makes a much cleaner beer for a Belgian uh, beer, like a Saison, we can control the temperature more if we want to get an even greater fruity ester profile and what have you. And then for IPAs, um, it more is just more of a clean fermentation. Um, it's, it, it, it's an odd thing. We can make a batch of Pliny in an open top and in a closed top and then do a side-by-side -side tasting. And the open top almost always wins in sensory. No one can quite put their finger on what it is. They just say that, mm, I like that one better. And, you know, sometimes in sensory, that's that's just fine. Most of the sensory we do isn't like trying to pick apart like, oh, this flavor, that flavor, what have you. It's more of what we call a hedonic scale, which is a one to nine scale. Nine is I like it exceptionally well. One is, you know, oh, my God, this is a drain pour. Um, and, and so we'll do that hedonic scale using a uh, an app called Draft Lab. And 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 that's that for us is the most powerful uh, tool for sensory. Um, and again, Pliny kind of always wins with an open top over a closed top, although most of the time we're blending uh, batches together. And so even with that double IPA, you're, you're not so worried about oxidation or some of those things, or do you kind of rack it off right before the end? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. And so we'll, uh, you know, and it should also be said that there's nothing wrong with doing closed top fermentations um you know that's how most beer in the world is made um but you know an open top fermenter just gives us one more um, kind of tool in our in our toolkit and so the wart goes in you might get a little more wart area or more uh, air contact um, before fermentation starts so that is why um weizen beer makers in germany they're making german you know cloudy wheat beer like open top fermenters because they'll tell you that there's a um uh, a little more air contact and you'll get a little more um of that spicy note from the um the, the four ethyl guayacol um that is contributed through that oxidation but once fermentation starts it's kicking off so much co2 that it's fully protected and the tops of these tanks are sitting in rooms that are uh, fully protected so the air that is uh, cooling the room the tanks are jacketed but we do have cooling air uh, those uh, that's 100 percent outside air so there's not it's never recycled but then it's also um uh goes through a hepa filter and then just before it enters the room it goes through a uv lamp as well and and as home brewers if you want to mimic an open top fermentation to get that one-to-one -one ratio you actually can just um, fill. I'm, I'm just going to talk in really simple terms. Let's say you're you're you have making a five gallon batch and you're old school and you still ferment in, in glass carboys, you know. And you could just take two carboys and and only fill them halfway 
and you'll now you have your one-to-one ratio and then to start your fermentation and i actually do this in our little pilot brewery i have a little five barrel ss brew tech pilot brewery that i run and i actually have an open top fermenter coming from germany right now that's sitting outside the port of oakland waiting to get there uh, there to dock but um in the meantime to mimic uh, not having any back pressure after fermentation starts i'll take the dry hop cap off and just um, rubber band a, um, a, a dry hop bag over the top of it just so that you know no uh, fruit flies or whatever flying as a home brewer, you can do the same thing. Once you see fermentation going in your, your, um, your fermentation lock bubbling, you can take that out and just get some cheesecloth rubber banded over and you'll, you'll be fully protected because as long as there's CO2 blowing out, that CO2 is obviously heavier than air and will protect your, uh, your beer. And then we'll always rack a half a day to a day before we hit terminal gravity. Now, with those lagers that you're doing in open fermentation, are you doing those at, at traditional lager temps in the 50s, or are you going a little bit warmer? No, we. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, we use Augustiner lager yeast from BSI. I don't know if it's available to home brewers. I know BSI does not um, sell to home brewers, but I thought someone out there had grabbed it and is selling it and makes it available. Um, and so we ferment, it's recommended to ferment at 52 to 54. We fermented at 52. So we'll knock out at 50 Fahrenheit and then set the fermenter for 52. You always want to knock out a couple degrees colder than you want to actually ferment at. We even do that for our ales. We knock out at 64 and set the fermenter at 68. And sometimes we'll have a 24 hour hold before it starts creeping up, before the the, uh, the fermentation glycol control will, you know, go from 64 to 68, or will mm-hmm. knock out at 64 and set the tank to 68, and it'll just free rise up immediately. That that has more to do with tank size at one brewery to the other, because we have two facilities: one that has smaller tanks and one that has really big tanks. But anyways, back to the logger. I said it's an interesting question because. You know, sometimes you look at the yeast information and you go, well, did they really test all this or is it just complete bullshit that, you know, they have the temperature for this lager yeast is at this temperature and this lager yeast is at that temperature. And we we recently tried to ferment STS at 50. So we knocked out at 48, that two degree below, set the tank to 50. And it had a, it really struggled to get through fermentation. Just that two degrees made a big deal. Um, but, um, uh, and then, it, and then it struggled to clear diacetyl because we were two degrees lower and we didn't have as vigorous of a fermentation at the end. So it was a slower fermentation. So sometimes that, that, that more vigorous fermentation, um, is, is actually helpful. We're, we're not going to abandon this experiment, but what we'd probably do is raise the temperature up earlier on towards the end of fermentation to try to get it warmer to clear diacetyl because you know no one no one wants diacetyl in their in their beer so um but anyways that was just a case where we we took it uh, a lot colder um, uh, you know with that said i know the the vine stuff and lager yeast you can ferment it a little bit colder and that's more readily available for anyone professional or home brewer have you ever tried to take it warmer than that or is that just a little bit too uh, ballsy of a move on that scale we once um, had a batch of STS pills, our Pilsner, um, where the glycol went uh, went out. We had power outage or whatever happened, and it got up to like 
56 maybe. Um, and, and at that point you have an interesting decision to make because if you, you, you could leave it there and it's definitely going to be more fruity. That's what we opted to do. You know, we figured like, well, if the power went out and we have this beer now at 56 and the power's back on, the glycol's back on, it's holding at 56. Um, we was like, well, let's just turn it into experiment. Luckily that was just a single batch. Um, so it wasn't a huge batch, but if you drop the temperature at that point, whether it's professionally and you adjust your glycol, if you're a home brewer and you, you know, have those kind of controls with glycol, or if you're just moving it into an ice chest, you run the risk of really um, stymieing the yeast because the yeast can really um, get shocked by that temperature drop. One of the things that happens sometimes at the professional level that you want to try to avoid is that you've got these glycol controllers and they've got a differential of half a degree, one degree, two degree. If you have that set for two too much of a differential and the exothermic um, dynamic of fermentation as it's heating it up, let's say it gets up to um, 52 degrees and you have your differential set to 50, it's going to cool it back down to 50. You can do some real damage to your yeast and fermentation. So, um, and then we also take that lager yeast and sometimes use it to make like a steam beer at our brew pub. And, uh, and it ferments just fine at the warmer temperature. It just makes a much fruitier style beer, but makes a really nice uh, steam beer, or we have to call it California Common Beer since Anchor has that trademarked. We know you, you live closer to Anchor than we do, or than I do personally. So uh, I guess you have to, to abide a little bit harder. Uh, uh, we, we try to abide by any trademark, you know, we gotta do as, do as to others what we would want be done to us. I, I bet we send out, two or three cease and desists every month for Pliny the Elder for something that someone has has done. It's gotten to the point where we just let our attorney deal with it because quite frankly, Natalie and I don't have time and it's kind of a dick move because it'd be in the old days, I'd pick up the phone and call someone and say, hey, you know, it's it's, it's cute that you're paying homage to us, but um, but we just don't have time for that. You know, I mean, there's it's just the back and forth and there there was just one recently that the brewery you know, sort of, oh, well, we, we did it as a tribute to you. And it's like, ah, it, it makes me feel bad that I just sicked our attorney on him. But at the same time, like we got a business to run. So, Well, man, that, that is kind of your uh, your bread and butter there, right? Because I guess you um, invented the style at Blind Pig and then you've kind of uh, really made it into your own there at, at Russian River. So, uh... yeah, we it, it accounts for probably 65 Pliny accounts for probably 65, maybe 70% of our production. And then, you know, blind pigs, probably another 10%. And STS is another 5%. Those are our top three beers. We have another IPA that we make year round called Happy Hops. And that's um, what I call more of a progressive IPA. It's more of that new world style using newer hop varieties. Um, so it's got more of a... Uh, mango tropical um, stone fruit uh, there's a lot of strata in in that beer and a lot of mosaic more more mosaic than anything else and so mosaic nowadays often carries a little bit of dank kind of cannabis quality to it and so yeah, there is always this underlying onion garlic dank note to it but we try to really keep that suppressed yeah it gives me kind of a diesel-y character that uh in, in too large a quantity is kind of eh and that's that's where um, that's where hop selection really comes in. And um, we were uh, we were the 
first brewery ever to use HBC 369, and that ended up being Mosaic. So I have the um, I have the distinction of the first to ever use Simcoe, and the first to ever use um, Mosaic, which in its original form 369. And ironically, those two hops are related. Most people don't know that, but um, Mosaic is the daughter to Simcoe. So without uh, Simcoe, you don't have Mosaic. Mosaic wouldn't exist without without Simcoe. So, and Simcoe's kind of an old hop now. It's been 20, 22 years. It's been out twenty three years. So, um, and, and but we're we're pretty good friends with Jason Peralt, who bred both both those hops, and he handed had his hand in Citra and Sabro, and um, his newest one. Um, is a talus which is really unique which is the daughter to sabro um and and many others as well one of his one of his greatest hops is warrior it's it's an amazing bittering hop it's the bittering hop for a lot of our beers it's high alpha um but super clean uh, bitterness really low cohumulone um we i'll use it as as much as i can if you know if i'm looking for a high alpha hop for bittering that's awesome. A question for so, you for a hop like uh, Simcoe. Um, have you seen like drastic changes in the quality of their or the the character of that hop over say the last ten years? And then, and then how do you deal with those sort of you know year to year changes when you got a you know a flagship like Pliny where you're trying to get some you know, kind of match the profile? Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Simcoe and Pliny. Um, so I think. Uh, I think last year we bought like almost 80,000 pounds of it or something is a pretty insane amount. Um, we're, we're lucky uh, that uh, two of our three sources of Simcoe come direct from two farms that are part of the three families that still own that, that, that hop. It's cause it's a private variety. Um, it's in it. So we, we do get first dibs on most um, Simcoe at, at both of these farms. And then we still buy a good amount from Yakima chief as well. And, um, and so we're, we're always looking, everything about hop selection is a picking window. And, you know, one of the problems with a hop getting too popular is that that picking window gets larger and larger. Simcoe should be uh, an eight day picking window. And it's more like a 12 or 14 day picking window now. Um, and so you still have the best of the best happening right in that picking window. But because it's expanded, they've had to expand the front end and the back end to fit it all in. But they've also added a lot more farms to grow it. That's really happened with Citra and Mosaic because there's a lot more Citra and Mosaic growing over Simcoe. So we're always often looking for the same picking window. So we'll rub the hops and smell them. This is Natalie and I will do this together. And then it's odd that we often will always end up in the same picking window every year. Um, one of the things that we do is we only buy Simcoe from the same three farms or technically four farms. Um, the Peralt, that's Jason Peralt who bred Simcoe, a carpenter, uh, they're, they're in Granger, Washington, and then uh, Loftus and Tributary. It's the same family. The Smith family owns that. So I always include them as pretty much the same farm, but those are the only places that we buy Simcoe from. They're the three original families that planted Simcoe that still own the Simcoe rootstock. So I think by at least narrowing it down to the same farms, we end up with pretty consistent Simcoe from year to year, that coupled with the picking window and, and we're in pretty good shape. Same with Amarillo. We buy 100% of our Amarillo from Crosby Farms in Oregon. For years, I bought from Washington and every time I'd go buy other hops from uh, Crosby, Blake Crosby would like throw his Amarillo in front of me and I'd smell and be like, oh my God, these, this is what it was like when I started using Amarillo 
in the late 90s. And I let my other contracts expire and I moved all my Amarillo to Crosby. And so that is our second most used hop is, is Amarillo. So Simcoe and Amarillo, same farms every year. And we often fall in the same picking windows. You want to something really weird? And I didn't know this. Um, every, every year when we go do hop selection at, at Peralt for the Simcoe's, uh, Steve Peralt, um, who's third generation, his son Jason is fourth, says to me, he always comes up because we always have dinner. They, they cook, they, we all cook a really nice dinner and that the night and, and, um, and he goes, he always is really interested. He goes, Vinny, what, what lot did you pick? And I'll tell him. And, and he knows exactly like which fields they come from. He goes, you know, this is the third and fourth, this is the third time in four years that you and Natalie have picked the same, not just the same picking window, but the exact same field that, and so we have this, 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 this thing that just is like, we're going to the same field every time. We did the same thing with Amarillo two of the last three years. Um, we picked the same, we chose the same uh, field at, at Crosby as well. That's awesome because I know most, most of those home brewers were probably were, were buying a pound bag from somebody and we're kind of rolling the dice and, and hoping it's uh, decent. Yeah, it, it's tough. Um, you know, you can you can do uh, hop teas and um, it doesn't have to take a lot of, of hops. You can you can soak them in in a little bit of beer or you can just do it in water. Um, I, I find it better to do it in a neutral beer. Um, honestly, I think it'd be a really cool a little project for a homebrew club to to do because it's really educational but yeah if you soak some hops in a hop tea and you smell it and you smell that onion garlic um you definitely don't want to be dry hopping with those hops now mosaic always has a little bit of that dankness to it um and and mosaic used to be way more on the blueberry side than it is now it's it's definitely got a little more of that that dank note along with all the fruity notes but um, but if you smell that, 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 that dank note, you definitely don't want to dry hop with it. Cause it's, it's going to come through the beer. Those sulfur thiols, um, may they're volatile, but they're going to, they're going to be there. So, um, you know, and that's, that's definitely where, wherever you're buying your hops, that's hopefully the service that they're, that they're providing you is that they're getting really good, good hops. One, one way to combat that is if cryo is available, um, which is the concentrated Luplin pellets that Yakima Chief does, and that's Hop Steiner and Haas, which are the two other two main hop companies, also have their own version of it. But Cryo is basically concentrated uh, hops. So hop regular hop pellets are considered T90 pellets, and then the concentrated Cryo pellets are technically T45s, meaning that. Um, 50% of the green matter have been removed. And so, you know, Simcoe is normally a 12 alpha, it's going to be 24, but you also have doubled your oils and you can use 50% less of the hops. And so uh, in doing that, you end up with less vegetal material. So you should get more hop flavor. And for me, it's more true to type. Some brewers will say the cryo is a little thin, doesn't give you any depth of flavor, but I think you can get that depth of flavor from any hop variety. Um, Cause we use all cryo now for our dry hopping and Pliny and blind pig. And, and it's still, it's probably the, 
best. I mean, we're probably making the best Pliny we've ever made in the history of our brewery, and we're using all cryo. And uh, Crosby's about to put a a uh, cryo line in, or they are, and so I'll soon be using all cryo Amarillo. But we still use other hop varieties in the dry hop that are T90, so you get that depth of flavor from those other hop varieties that are um, a little less expensive as well. So, so from what I'm hearing is you, you, you suggest blending some T90 with something like a cryo or a Lupamax or whatever that is to get yeah. those kind of depths of flavors in there and just layer it in. Yeah, yeah. Although I will say we make 100% Simcoe beer called Row 2 Hill 56. Simcoe all the way through on the hot side and the dry hop. And the name references the very first location in the experimental field that Jason had Simcoe growing. So that meant that it was the second row over and the 56th hill in. And that and that's how they um, basically track the hops when he makes the first crosses because he's not going to give them a number yet. They'd be he because they he makes like twenty thousand crosses a year, and then from there he'll pull out whatever the hops he likes, and and then they get a number. And um, and so there we're using all T90s and whole cone on the hot side, and then we dry hop with with cryo. And you know it's pale ale, so you don't want it to be over the top. You know I I think. I think that's one of the problems with the craft beer industry right now is that like it seems like the at least the really small brewers are really just focusing on the hardcore beer enthusiast beer geek that just wants more and more and more and you know there's still this whole market out there of people that want a regular ipa that is only dry hopped at a pound you know, pound and a quarter per barrel. Our number two selling beer is, is this IPA blind pig that goes back to reference my first brewery. It's six and a quarter percent alcohol. It's a pound per barrel dry hop. I mean, that's that's just damn near pedestrian compared to some of these breweries that are at like, you know, three and a half, four pounds per barrel. And that three and a half, four pounds per barrel might include cryo. So you have to take any of that cryo and double it. And um, I think it was Sam Richardson at Other Half Brewery in Brooklyn, New York, that had his, and I love his term, it's like high density hop being something or other. And basically what he's saying is on beers that he uses that term, that high density hopping, whatever it is, that means that he's using a mix of everything. He could be using T90s, T45s. He might be using liquid uh, hop extracts um, that Haas and Steiner sell. And I'm sure Yakima Chief have them right in the coming soon. Um, and, and those are concentrated syrups that you can just add that are basically hops. So these, these advanced products really um, give the brewer a lot of tools in their toolkit. Yeah, that, that, that is awesome. So we were talking about hops. And so Mark Woods asked, uh, he couldn't be here tonight, but he had a question asking if you tra played with any New World, like Australia or New Zealand hops. We use a little Australian, uh, or excuse me, New Zealand hops. Um, there is uh, Nelson in our, that beer, Happy Hops. Um, and then there's a little bit of Nelson in Pliny the Younger last few years. Um, and I'll, I'll just mess around with those hops in our pilot brewery. Um, I've messed around with Rewaka and uh, Motuika. Um, you know, honestly, when you have a beer like Pliny and it takes so much of your production, you you sometimes don't have time to like build new brands around new hops. And and to me, I, I have a I have a like a very focused view on this, and that's that like, you know, I I grew up in brewing in the era of uh, Amarillo 
and Simcoe. And so when I go do hop selection, those are the two hops. Like we pick, Natalie and I pick our trip based on Amarillo and Simcoe. We get to Yakima just as they've harvested the last of the Simcoe and Amarillo has just been finished harvesting a few days before. And like when we're doing that hop selection, we're, we're more selecting a, like not for a great aroma and whatnot. I mean, we want want that but we're more like what what don't we want okay that smells like onion garlic okay we don't want it and and so simcoe and amarillo are our focus everything else is kind of secondary even citra we use citra but we use it almost like if you're cooking with saffron you're just going to use a little bit you know here and there too much saffron is is too over the top same with citra too much citra and your beer smells like cat pee um same with nelson though going back to your question like you use too much nelson and it, and it does have this cat pee quality to it and um and so we use a little bit but not not that much i'm really curious to learn more um the one new new zealand hop i'm really interested in trying is the uh is it nectarana and i know my friend matt brennelson of firestone walker is using it quite a bit um, but, uh, I haven't, I haven't got my hands on it yet. And so, you know, what I was saying about the Pliny thing was like, when we were, when we were building our new brewery, we were at hundred percent capacity, both our other, our pub and our old production brewery. So we didn't have any time to test like <clears throat> Vic secret or, or rewalk or any of these hops that have come out in the last 10 years from the New Zealand breeding program. Now that we have a little pilot brewery, it's a lot easier for us to mess around with, with those hops. I was I was just read, reading some of the comments um, that someone had asked about uh, polyphenols on our beer. Can you elaborate on that? And that that kind of ties into the hop thing here. So when uh, when I drink one of our IPAs um, and 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 it's like, oh, yeah, this is an exceptional batch of whatever Pliny happy hops. We look at a few different markers. We look at uh, bittering units. Um, but I'll put an asterisk next to, next to that. We look at the finishing gravity, of course, the alcohol, and and then polyphenols, and all of those things contribute to the finish of the beer. And and why it's important is that if you have a beer that's um, not bitter enough, uh, or if it's not, if it's too sweet, or if you end up with not enough polyphenols. Um, you end up with what we call a flabby beer. And it's, if any of you are into wine, it's like drinking a wine that doesn't have a high enough acidity content. And, and you want that bitterness or the dryness um, or the polyphenols. The polyphenols come off as like, can be astringent um, and they'd be on the back of your tongue. Um, you know, and I think of like uh, eating a grape and then just like chewing the skin. Those are those are going to be, and especially if it's a varietal grape, like cab or something like that, that's, that's a, the best way to describe polyphenols. It polyphenol tannins and red wine. Um, that's, that's, those are polyphenols. And like when all those things align, the bitterness, the finishing gravity, the alcohol, just from the heat, um, that that's secondary and the polyphenols, like I'll, I'll have a, one of our beers and tell our lab, like, okay, mark this batch as, like this is this is a batch we want to use as a benchmark. The the way that these numbers come together um, are really uh, in the, the backbone of what I think is probably what's made this beer really good. We just had a batch of happy hops that it's the first time I've ever given it an eight on the hedonic scale. Except again, that's that one to nine scale. I'll never give a beer a nine because that's saying the beer is perfect. But I've never given happy hops an eight. And um, and my 
my, my wife and business partner, Natalie, she was shocked because I'd never, I don't think I've ever given any beer an eight, but it was like in that right spot. But um, so, so the polyphenols come from the dry hops. Polyphenols actually play a really important role in um, hazy IPAs. So um, like the, the interaction between the proteins from your, like your oats or your wheat or whatever, and the polyphenols are what can cause permanent haze. And man, it's the, it's, if you're into making hazy IPAs and you can get your haze to stick, um, hat, hats off to you. Cause that's a really hard style to make and to get that, that those proteins to bind with the polyphenols at the exact right pH and get them to stick, especially, you know, this is all happening in fermentation when the pH, uh, should be, uh, dropping. And then you're trying to hit this right marker. Um, and then, you know, and then all the while <clears throat> you're, you, you know, different hop varieties do different things. So, so polyphenols are really difficult and hard to, to deal with and understand, but when you can get it right, it's really a beautiful thing. Um, there's, and, and I mentioned BUs with an asterisk next to it because something that we only learned as the beer industry, I think it was only like probably 12 or 15 years ago. And my, I have a, I have a friend who's, um, Natalie, I have a friend, she's got a, PhD in hops. She used to be the lead hop chemist for Miller uh, Miller Coors, and now she's gone on and, and works elsewhere. But she taught me about this about a decade ago, and there's this thing called humulinones. And humulinones are basically a type of bitterness. They're oxidized alpha acids, basically. So the, 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 when you dry hop with a higher alpha acid hop, that has been exposed to oxygen, even if it's been in your freezer or um, refrigerator or whatever, those uh, alpha acids will oxidize into humulinones. But humulinones are only 0.65% uh, as bitter as one isomerized alpha acid. So if you, one, one isomerized alpha acid would equal only 0.65 roughly um, humulin, a BUs in humulinones. So one BU of isomerized alpha acids is like 0.65 of, of humulinones in BU scale. So it's a different type of bitterness. And so when you're dry hopping and then you run your beer through the spectrophotometer on, on the professional level and you get a reading of, let's say, 75, you don't know what uh, what part of that 75 BUs are isomerized alpha acids or humulinones because dry hopping is contributing so many humulinones to your beer. And so that's the unknown in this equation. When I see this like perfect uh, or near perfect beer in the case, happy hops the other day, when I gave it an eight, my question is, oh, shoot, I wish we could measure humulinones. It's one of the few things that we can't measure in our lab. And, um, we measure BUs with an, with a, a spectrophotometer, but that takes an HPLC, a high performance liquid chromatography to measure those. And that would be the ultimate, you, but you have very few breweries that, that have that and very few labs that have HPLC also. But it's a really interesting component of bitterness and IPAs that has only come up since the over the top dry hopping that's, you know, started, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years in the industry. Before that, they didn't know what they were. That's awesome. So, um, sticking on some questions that we have in the chat, not that I don't, not that I want you to get off that topic because that's an awesome topic. 
Somebody asked about a craft beer channel episode where you help them develop a recipe for a Pliny style beer. Did you ever get to try it? If I'm remembering correctly, was that recently? I don't know who, uh, said, uh, that was from Derek. Derek. Yeah. I don't know if he, uh, can chime in. If it was recently, someone just, we just got some samples of some beer that they were making some Pliny clones and it just arrived the other day, but I haven't tried it yet. If it was a long time ago. I, I I'm not sure I tried it or not. Yeah, it was recently. Yeah, those actually just arrived, and they're in my little beer stash in uh, in, in our cold box. So, and yeah, our um, I see above that question the uh, Omega Yeast Labs 500 is the Saison Steins Monster. That's our that's our yeast we use for uh, Robert, and that's that's a highly diastaticus yeast. So diastaticus is it's called diastaticus STA1 positive. And so what that is, is yeast that um, has an enzyme in it that can break down and ferment through all the complex sugars that most regular beer yeast can't do. Um, that, that, the, a diastaticus yeast makes Britannomyces look like a pussycat. Um, it's more aggressive than Britannomyces is like any day of the week. And, and so um, we, I'm, I'm actually more nervous about a, a diastaticus STA1 positive yeast than I am Britannomyces. Um, we, we can deal with that, but this, this could like big trouble for a brewery. So, um, so even, so we bottle condition our, and, and keg condition our, um, our, our Saison. And so let's say the primary fermentation finishes at 0.25 Play-Doh. When we go to bottle condition, we'll take that 0.25 Play-Doh of, uh, sugar left in the primary fermentation and add it and consider it as a part of the bottle conditioning. Cause once bottle conditioning is done, it'll be at zero, uh, Play-Doh. So how long does that secondary bottle conditioning with Brett take usually? Uh, this is in Robert. That's not with Brett. That's just with, um, it's a dry yeast from a uh, Lollimon called CBC one. It's a bottle condition yeast. And, um, it's, it's just a really great, uh, neutral bottle condition yeast um, with that, but there is still some of the the saison yeast, the 500 saison Steins monster left in there, even though we centrifuge it. But that's like uh, two weeks to do the fermentation, and then we'll typically let it rest for two weeks just to mellow out, and then and then we would release it. But that that makes that beer, you know, probably almost a two month beer. So it's a, it's a, it's a long fermentation or long process, top to finish. When we take the Robert and make it into Yanami, where we finish it with Brett, we're now doing a mix of Brett and, um, and the, the CBC one bottle condition yeast. And that will sit for about three months before we release it. So that turns that beer almost into like a four month beer. And then if we're bottle conditioning a sour barrel aged funky wild beer, we don't use CBC one. We use a wine yeast called DV10, and um, but any wine yeast will almost do. Um, and you want to use a wine yeast there and not a beer yeast because the high acid content of the barrel aged beer, sour funky beer, um, will often hinder and stymie the fermentation of that um, of that that bottle conditioning in the sour beer because the acidity is so low. The total acid is high, the pH is low, and there's a lot of yeast that can't live in that environment. So it's good to use a wine yeast in that environment for boat conditioning. So you wouldn't have to do like a, a sour shock starter for 
that wine yeast in a sour bottle condition. No, no, this we we get that in a dry form, the DV10 um, okay. from uh, Scott Lab, but it comes in a, a half kilo brick, so it's more than you guys would need. But there's there's plenty of good wine yeast that you can get at a, a homebrew shop, and you know, little seven gram or thirty whatever ten gram packets, whatever they come in, that you should be able to use. Perfect. Thank you. So um, another question from Will Allward. He said that he recently heard you talk about the importance of mid-boil hop additions. Oh, yeah. But use percentages of the total hop bill. So his question would be, what kind of yeah. IBU contributions do you, top, do you target for your mid-boil additions? Is it like 15 IBUs or is it something much larger from your mid-boil? Um, yeah. And, and the reason there, that's a, that's a lost art. The mid boil hop edition is, is forgotten by a lot of brewers. And, you know, that's, that's not to say that we don't make beers where we just do a small bittering charge and just load the whirlpool up with a crap load of hops. We do have a, a beer, one of our happy hops, I mentioned it earlier, is pretty much like that. Um, but I, I think that 45-minute, 30-minute, 15-minute addition has been lost, and I think it adds mouthfeel and depth of flavor, and um, I, I even wonder if in some way that contributes to some of our mouth hop mouthfeel that allows us to use cryo and not see like in the row two hill 56 the all simcoe beer that that recipe has a it's a beginning of boil bittering addition a 15 minute a whirlpool and then we dry hop with all cryo and i wonder if that 15 minute addition adds some of that hop mouthfeel you know i, I can't scientifically prove it but um one of these days we'll we'll try making that beer on our pilot brewery and not do that 15 minute addition and see if there is a flavor difference. But um, so it's a going to the question of contribution. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's probably just like 10 or 15 BUs. It's certainly not more than that by, by any means. Um, I, I think it just adds this, this, this component of, uh, of, of hop flavor that's mid palate. I, I've heard about the depth of flavor. I, I'm really curious to explore. Um, maybe we can get our friends over at philosophy.com to explore that whole mouthfeel thing. Cause that's, that's a really curious idea that I haven't heard before. So I'm, I really would like yeah. to explore that. Yeah. You know um, it's, it's old school, but Pliny and blind pig, of course they have all of our beers have a, a 75 minute hop edition. We typically boil our, our warts for 75 minutes um in time we would like to bring that to 60 minutes just because there's a shelf stability issue you get you get you get advanced health sh shelf stability with a shorter boil that, that gets a little geeky with this thing called the tbi index the dial bar baturic index it's basically a measurement of thermal load and thermal stress on your wart um but but like with a 75 minute boil, I was going to say Pig and Pliny are still old school. They have a 45 minute edition, a 30 minute edition, and then and then we we use a whirlpool edition. At our brew pub in Santa Rosa, we do um, pellets, but in our Windsor, our larger Windsor production brewery, which is a full German brew house, we have a hot back, so we've replaced almost all the whirlpool editions on all of our recipes there with whole cone hops, and so our wort uh, doesn't sit on the 
the hot pellets in the whirlpool for like an hour or sometimes longer, like a lot of breweries do. We, we finish the boil in the kettle. We pump the wort to the uh, whirlpool. If the recipe has a pellet addition, of course, we do add the pellets. But for Pig and Pliny, almost all the hops are whole cone. I think like 80% of the hops are whole cone. So that may, means we get a, a tighter trube pile in the whirlpool after it's done spinning. And then what trube is left from the kettle and what pellets we use are there in the center. We then pump that wort into our hop back and it goes over a bed of hops, something like 70 or 80 pounds of hops. So about a pound per barrel um, for Pliny in the world, in the hop back. And that's whatever the mix of hops is. And then that wort extracts all those volatile, delicate hop oils out of the whole cone hops. But that wart goes immediately to the wart cooler and we cool the wart down so it locks in those volatile hop oils that normally are blowing off in the whirlpool. I don't I don't understand this um, this concept of um, of like the, where you do a long hop stand in the in the whirlpool. Um, you are getting flavor there, but you're losing all your aroma, even even if you're doing a cool pool where you add uh like water to dilute your cold water to dilute your wort down to cool it down so that it's not as hot or you run it through a heat exchanger which some breweries do you're losing all kinds of uh, aroma at even at 170 and if you go below 180 now you've dropped below the sanitation threshold the 180 degrees is where you're you're safe from a sanitary standpoint so um, so we do the, the cool pool technique on some of our beers, but most of the time we still don't, but, um, but that whole cone hop thing really changed our beers. So that, that is really awesome. I have no idea how to reproduce that on a homebrew scale, but that sounds really awesome. You know, uh, I, I remember, um, we, I saw there was a question on here. Do I still occasionally homebrew? It's been a while since I do, um, I, I have homebrewed because I, um, my my homebrew kit is a five barrel system now from SS Brew Tech, and um, but our homebrew system does get used by some of our employees. But I remember they had a little attachment to the kettle that had a quick disconnect that you could run the wort through this little. I'm just going to say it's like a one gallon stainless steel um, vessel. I, if I remember right, um, uh, Chris, who owns More Beer, told me that it was technically a um, a blancher for um, asparagus that they converted into a hot back. I, I, I may have that wrong, but um, um, but I'm pretty sure Chris told me that once. But anyways, I used it and you'd run the wort through that, through the hops and then out of there, you would pump the wort to the, um, to your uh, wort, to your wort cooler. So it, it probably can be done, but maybe, maybe it's getting a little too over the top too for home brewing. No, that, that, that's pretty rad though. Um, so, so as far as, you know, we just talked about mid boil additions and so kind of the death of mid boil additions has been more of the hazy craze. And I yeah. may have looked at your tap list earlier. So I, I kind of, I, I want to hear your opinion on the hazy craze, the East versus yeah. West kind of thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know that like, I don't have an opinion on like the East coast, West coast. I remember when that was going on. Cause, cause I, I will say that like, I remember, um, thinking about these hazy IPA brewers, um, and like, oh, you know, they're getting 
beat up by a lot of West Coast brewers and a lot of old school brewers who now all make hazy IPAs, mind you. And I was like, oh, this reminds me of when I made double IPA. I totally knew how they felt. Like people, you know, brewers back in the mid 90s would taste uh, Blind Pig IPA or the double IPA made and be like, Jesus, that's like bitter. It's, it's like, yeah, but it's so good. It's so tasty. And so I, I remember being chastised by other brewers. So I, I kind of felt their pain, but um, we make, we make one uh, hazy IPA. It's called Mind Circus. And, um, uh, you know, Mind Circus is what you do when you lay in bed at night and you can't like, you can't fall asleep because you're thinking of all these things um so that's that's what that's named after and um and so you know for us it was a challenge um a lot of the new age brewers were very tight-lipped on how they got their haze you know one of the unique things of hazy ipas that um some of the hop companies have figured out is that you know when you add those high protein cereals like um wheat the hop oils bind better and so it's it's an odd thing because i've always used wheat in some of my ipa recipes i didn't know why until you know in the last five years that some of these hop people figured out these hop scientists figured out that they bind with the protein so adding a little bit of wheat to all your ipa recipes isn't a bad thing um unless you know unless you're allergic to wheat i guess but um i think the one thing for me personally that distinguishes our IP, our hazy from a lot, at least um, the general well-known ones is that um, ours is drier. You know, it finishes at like two and a quarter, two and a half Play-Doh. So about the same level as Pliny and Pig. Um, you know, I know of some hazy IPAs that are finishing at like four, four and a half Play-Doh. Um, if you're in, if you're, and if you work with specific gravity, just take my number and times it by four. So, you know, a four Play-Doh would be a 1016 finishing gravity. And that's, that's pretty sweet in my book. Um, there's this thing in Belgium that they say that your beer is digestible. And what that means is that you can drink several beers and then wake up in the morning and still feel, feel fine. And so having a digestible beer is typically having a dry beer. Um, the other thing that for us that makes Mind Circus different than a lot of our, friends in the industry is that it's it's a bit more bitter it's got like five or ten more bittering units to it and so that drying there's a lot of hazies that are a little bit sweet and heavy on the palate um you know for me i think a lot of them have too much calcium uh, chloride in them and that chloride's giving you mouthfeel and that big full rich kind of sweet mouthfeel that's that i know hazies are known for but um but i like dry bitter you know, I, I drink at one speed typically. So um, I, I like beer dry and bitter and have that that thirst quenching note that wants you, that makes you want to come back and drink another, you know, sip or glass of the beer. So those are the things that that makes our uh, hazy a little bit different. Um, but that's not to say we're the only one out there like that. I know of plenty of brewers that have the same opinion and they make their hazies the same way. And uh, and those are the ones that I tend to like. Yeah, I think you're a man after my own heart there because I do like my hazies have a little more sulfate, a little bit of that drier finish, which is kind of blasphemous for some people, but definitely yeah. my preference. But, you know, it's all beer. That's why you brew your own, you can yeah. have your own preference. Yeah, that's why when you walk into the store, there's like too many beers to pick from now. But if you know what you're looking for, you're in, you're in good shape. Well, and I want to honor your time. We're almost up to an hour. I don't want to take yeah. up too much of your time. I, I, have a little more, I have a little more time. No, no worries. Um, so, uh, Haven, who's still hanging out over there, he, he did post something 
about uh, how do you go about designing ales destined for barrels? Like, are you taking on uh, an already created recipe and just putting it in a barrel, or do you tweak it or do you design it specifically for barrel aging? Yeah, so um, we, in I mean, sometimes we will take an existing beer and just put it to barrel, but most of the time we design a whole new recipe. So typically it has a higher, <clears throat> excuse me, mash temperature with the idea to um, have a, a more residual sugar left at the end. Um, to me, a well-made base beer that you're going to put in barrels that, that's going to be funky or sour um, might not be that drinkable because it's going to be a little sweet and whatnot. Um, you might also want to thicken up your um, grist to water ratio. Um, because a thicker grist to water ratio is going to have less movement in there for the liquid and enzymes to be able to um, do their thing. So you'll end up with a sweeter beer. You know, if you one trick that often gets overlooked in brewing, and it's very simple, if you want to make a drier beer, just add more uh, water, more liquor to your grist to liquor ratio. And I guarantee you'll end up with a drier beer. That's, we, we use that trick all the time and it's surprise. It's actually one of my interview questions when I interview brewers is, um, is, is talk about that. And it's surprising how many brewers don't know that it's pretty simple. Um, you know, I think I read that in an early homebrew book years ago and it's just kind of always stuck with me. So that's another little trick. Um, we typically only pitch 50% of our normal yeast. So if we were pitching an ale at the standard million cells, per milliliter degree Plato, we would probably only pitch at 500,000 cells um, or whatever your pitch rate is, pitch 50%. You don't have to know your exact pitch rate in numbers. If you're using, you know, a liquid yeast that you're pulling the sludge from another fermentation, you know that you typically use, you know, I don't know, whatever, like you know, four ounces, use, use two ounces. Um, or dried yeast, you can just cut it in half. And what you're, what I'm trying to do is like stymie the fermentation. Now this, this may not be for everyone though. I, for most of our main barrel beers, temptation, supplication, and consecration, I want that fermentation to finish a little bit high so that it leaves some residual sugar for the Britannomyces to work through. And then after about two or three months of just the beer and the bread in the barrel, uh, then we'll add our bacteria, add our, our, uh, lacto and pedio mix, which is basically just sludge from our spontaneous fermented beer uh, program, what we beer we call Sinambic, that's Sonoma and Lambic contracted together. Um, and that that's so we've we've we haven't bought bacteria in like forever. Um, so that's our normal program. But we're we now are making this other beer called Funky Fooder, and it's just basically a lower price point um, barrel funky beer except we're doing it all fooders because there's less labor and here i'm using a saison yeast that's diastaticus so it's fermenting drier so i'm leaving less residual sugar and then it's going into the fooder with a mix of brett and bacteria so here i don't want to have too much residual sugar left in that base beer otherwise the bacteria may take over and it might make it too sour and acidic so you kind of have to know what your end game is what you want your end beer to be like to decide which way you're going to go that that second process i described is what is now considered like mixed fermentation but technically you know you're you're doing the, the idea there is that you're mixing saccharomyces brett and um, bacteria all all together 
And then, and then hops are important here too. We use all aged hops on any of our um, barrel aged funky beer. And so aged hops are great because they have low alpha acid. Um, the beta acid still there, which can carry some antimicrobial components to it. And the more hops you add, you can suppress the bacterial growth of the, of the, um, the, the bacteria with, with whatever residual sugars there. And that's the whole premise behind Lambic uh, brewing. And I'd be remiss without saying a little tip of the hat to Armand de Belder, who just passed away from Dre Fontaine. He was a, a great inspiration for, for me. So I'm going to give you a quick softball. So um, I know you're drinking your STS Pilsner tonight, but uh, what would be your desert island beer? You're stranded on a desert. What would be the beer that you would take with you? Uh, Orval from Belgium, probably. Um, I'm a huge Orval fan. Um, there's some close seconds. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is often surprising when people ask me that, but I love, I still think Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is just an absolute beautiful beer. And I, I, I marvel at its staying power. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I know Pliny's been around a long time, but, but Sierra Nevada has been around a really long time. And, uh, Ken, Ken Grossman made a, a, an amazing beer there, but I, I usually go with Orval because it's a Brett finished beer. And so if you're on a desert Island, it changes over time. So it's like having more than one beer. If you drink Orval when it's, you know, uh, a month old, it doesn't have any Brett. And then we, we, consumers wouldn't see it at a month old, but at about three months old, when it's released in Belgium, it's really hoppy and snappy and just a tiny bit of Brett. And then you get it a year and it goes through these waves and the Brett kind of changes and increases. And so you, you end up with more than one beer, even though it's just one beer. I got to, I got to once do a Natalie and I got to do a tasting once at Orval with Jean-Marie Rock, the now retired director of brewing operations there. And um, I asked him a simple question. I said, what's Orval taste like, like when it's just freshly bottled condition that like two or three weeks and he goes oh we should go taste and he pulled out like 12 different orvals and we tasted like two week four week six week eight week um, three uh three months four five six all the way to like a year and it was really interesting we had all these glasses and tasting them and seeing the difference and i think the oldest orval i tasted was probably like 30 years old and uh, maybe even a little bit older so i, I love going to belgium so so I've been to Orval, and your your description makes me insanely jealous because I just had to go to the cafe down the street where I paid the extra fifty cents to get the six yeah. month plus age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did Orval. did you go to did you go to the ruins at Orval? Oh, of course. That you have to go to the ruins. They're, the ruins are, are almost better than going to the brewery. I mean, I've 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 been lucky enough to go to the Orval brewery several times, but the ruins are what just take your breath away, and to be you know, in these ruins that were, you know, basically taken down, you know, through several wars and, 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 um, it's just a magical place. It's, you know, as you know, it's not close to Brussels at all. It's a long yeah. drive and it's a whole day trip. We're, we're going to be in Belgium next month. We have an event with Cantillon and, and Allegash at Cantillon. And, but we, we will take a day and go down to Orval and spend the night down there. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful part of the country that doesn't get visited that not, not near enough. Well, what's the story of the logo? It's got like the fish with the ring in its mouth and it's based off of some. Uh, yeah. The countess the ring. Yeah. The countess, uh, uh, Matilda, uh, in the region there, she, 
she leaned over her she her husband had died and she had her wedding ring on her neck she leaned over a a water whatever pool that i think myth is yeah spring and she lost it and she goes oh if 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 i could just get my ring back um i would build the community uh, a church and monastery and a trout jumps out of the water and brings the ring back and that's what the logo is so and they also have really amazing cheese for those of you that are oh yes they do yeah and you know you know who also has great cheese is west mall which is up north in flanders um uh closer to antwerp uh they they've amazing beer of course west mall triple but some of the standard of all triples but their cheese is amazing too so you're speaking my language with all these trappist beers because uh, yeah. we, we lived in germany for about two or three years That's and we got cool. to go up into belgium and uh when you call the line to West Flandern and get to reserve your, your yeah. two cases of beer in West Flanders and drive all the way over there, it's fantastic. They don't, they uh, don't do that anymore. They, they got rid of that, unfortunately. So you do it all online now, right? Yeah. It's all online. Yeah. I'm, we're supposed to go to Rochefort on this trip and actually get inside. I've, we've, we've been in, in several of the Trappist monasteries, but I've never been in, in Rochefort and, uh, it's it's supposed it's a beautiful beautiful uh, brew house. I've seen pictures of it, so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty excited uh, to to get in there. So. I may I may rank Rochefort as my top quad. That may be my top one. I've sure. I've been brewing a quad in our pilot brewery, so I'm I'm really anxious to drink some fresh uh, West Flandern Twelve and and Rochefort because you know here on the east on the west coast you know most mm-hmm. beers come into a, a importer on the on the East coast and it's a long trip on the water and then it's got to travel across America and it's, it's in a warehouse and they have to sell through their stock that they already have. And by the time we see it, it's, 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 it's kind of a shell of, of what it is. So it's, it's fun to go to Belgium and drink like fresh Rochefort and like even fresh Duval, like Duval in America, it's, it's a disappointment um, because that, that beer is like an IPA. You should be drinking that fresh like we drink ipa fresh you know it's it's why no brewery should be shipping their ipa abroad and and the same thing like it's unfortunate that such a beautiful beer like duval does ends up being a little bit old and tired and their triple hop domestic in belgium is fantastic it it is just something to hold and then you get it here and it's all oxidized and just not very good yeah yeah no um is is there a domestic quad that you think holds a candle to uh, what they're doing over in belgium or um not i mean not that i've had recently um phil markowski who wrote the saison book uh and now works at is it two road on the east coast i think is it he used to work at this brewery uh southampton brewery and he made the most amazing like I don't know if it was a double or quad that it was pretty our strong dark ale it was probably the best american made dark Belgian beer I've ever had. He also made a pretty rock and triple as, as well. But I'd, I'd say right now, at least for triple, uh, Allagash triple is absolutely beautiful. Um, and, and I'm a big Allagash white fan as, as well. I'll drop me in Portland, Maine any day and I'll drink like a bar out of, of Allagash white, but quads, you just don't see them that much. And so I'm, I've been working on it. I'm on my fourth batch and uh, the first two batches I just stuck in barrels. The third batch was passable to put on tap. The fourth batch, I literally just racked it today, and it'll get keg conditioned, and uh, 
um, we'll, we'll, we'll put it out in a, in a couple few weeks and, um, but it's still not quite there yet. So I've been, I've been using the white labs, five thirty uh, yeast, but I'm curious. That's the West to Mall, right? Yeah. That's the West mall, West Vleteran yeast. And, uh, but I'm, I've never used what supposedly is the Rochefort yeast. Um, 510? I yeah, 510. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Sorry. It's sorry. I'm not a Belgian geek. I mean, we live there. I love it. Um, so it's not, so, not USA, but uh, Unibrow. Unibrow makes some pretty pretty good yeah, stuff. They, you can get yeah, they do. Or, yeah, up in Canada. They do some really cool stuff. So. I like North Coast. Uh, Brother Thelonious is pretty tasty. Yeah. Yep. They're just not, not far from me. Not far from you. And then uh, I think they have a, a breadish beer with Prankster, right? I'm not sure about that. I don't remember. Yeah, Prankster is their kind of Belgian strong dark ale. But not not sure beyond that. So, um, but, but they make some tasty stuff, and I know Avery's known for their Reverend. I think somehow they landed on that as their their yeah. strong yeah. dark. Or yeah, like, that's that's that. a big beer. It's a little sweet. So, I was looking at one one question, and I will probably have to jump after this. But about malt, do you have do you get that's a really cool question because um, hops are sexy and get all the you know they get they're like the lead singer and. Uh, Yeast is, you know, gets a lot of lot of attention, and malt is kind of back there. But um, yeah, you don't really get to do malt selection um, because, you know, barley is such a commodity. And um, you know, if you if you want to get a snapshot of what it's like as a professional brewer to be buying barley, because I mean, I think we're buying like three million, four million pounds a year now. Um, so we're we're buying a pretty good amount of barley for malt. And um, if you want to get a snapshot of that, there's this great documentary movie called King Corn. And it's these guys that grow an acre of corn and they want to follow it all the way through the process of until it gets, you know, made into whatever. And they, it's, it's all going good. And then they get to the big production facility and it's going to get blended into this like giant silo and then it's just going to be gone. And, and that's when they have to change the course of their movie. That's kind of like how getting, buying malt is, unless you're only buying from a local maltster, you know, from like a craft maltster, which we do. We have a really good one in Alameda, so in the Oakland area called um, Admiral. And they, they make really beautiful malt. And there's actually malt being grown here, in, or barley being grown in Sonoma County that they're buying. So I can make an all Sonoma County beer using Crane Ranch, um, both their hops and their, their barley after it's been malted. Um, but honestly, the problem is, is that craft malt is a dollar a pound. And, you know, we're, we're paying much lower than that. So trying to make money off beer that's a dollar a pound for malt is that's pretty expensive um for for commercial malt so we can do that on like a small one-off scale and know where it's coming from but otherwise um it's really more about varieties of, of barley and so we're we're looking at you know hopefully having a a, a, a mix that is got the right protein level and has the right fan level for, you know, amino nitrogen has the right DP. The color is right there. Um, and then the, um, that, that's, I mean, maybe the S over T is, is important, but there's, you know, if you look at a malt report, there's like 20 different things, um, 
that are that are listed and there's very few that are actually important so um but but so we we're on long contracts on our malt and uh, we're on a three-year contract uh, this is the worst malt year right now the 2021 crop that's being used in 2022 probably worst crop in 30 years so even before i was in the beer industry and um and so it's a real struggle extracts are down we're having to add more malt uh, per you know more more pounds per barrel to make um, the wart strength that we need, um, but that's just uh, kind of that's just kind of how it is. And um, so we're um, you know you, you it's an agricultural product. It's a good reminder that um, beer is an agricultural product, and um, you know hops are agriculture, water is agriculture, and so we need to um, you know just be focused on. Uh, on just trying to make the best beer possible. And unfortunately, 2022 is not looking any better because it's, there's been poor rainfall, both in the US and Canada, especially up in Canada, because what's happening is the grain belt's moving farther north as there's been climate change. It's really been affecting um, barley growing pretty significantly. Awesome. Well, I know I want to be uh, honoring your time. I know you said that's your last question, but we really want to thank you for coming out, Vinny. Really appreciate yeah. it. Well, it was a lot of fun. Appreciate you uh, having me, and thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. And anytime you want to invite me on any of your Belgian trips, just let me know. I'm, I'm game. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. Thanks. Appreciate it, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Ciao.